to close your day to worship you, specifically to worship you, Lord. So we ask for your help during this time. We ask that you allow us to clear our minds of anything that might preoccupy us, that we might focus upon your word and who you are and who you have given us in Christ Jesus. We pray for the spirit that he visits upon us during this time. Let us not take this hour for granted. Let us not see it as a deed that we need to do in order to gain some sort of favor with you. Well, let us see it for what it is, Lord, for your glory, for your worship. Let us come before you right now in joy. Let us come before you with cheerful hearts, seeking to worship you with people whose hearts are bent in that same direction, Lord. And for those here whose hearts are not, I ask that you bend them. I ask that you bend their knees and bend their hearts towards worship toward, towards you, Lord. We pray for our brothers and sisters all across this world, Lord, who have closed their days, who have taken to their beds on this night. We pray that their worship on this day was, was refreshing. We pray that it was joyous. We pray that they are reinvigorated to start their weeks. We pray that you were glorified in all of these things, especially those who were persecuted you for, persecuted for your sake during this time. Pray for all of our sister churches, those who we share like-minded commitments with, Lord. We pray for all of those in our body who are hurting during this time, whether it be emotionally dealing with loss of loved ones or sick loved ones, Lord. It would be those who are suffering physically. We think specifically of Prashant during this time. We pray that you give him relief from his surgery that he just had on his teeth, that he's able to recover quickly and to prepare to preach next week, Lord. We pray for all of those others who are suffering in a physical way. Give them relief. Let them keep their eyes upon you during this time. Lord, we once again pray for our time together. I pray for myself. Keep me behind the cross. Keep me from error. May your words be my words, not my own. We pray for the congregation. Let their ears be open and their hearts be softened. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, welcome all the guests. Welcome everyone who has not been here for the past few Sunday nights. But just to let you guys know that there's been a, a handful of us that have been preaching through the book of Exodus. A very fascinating and very foundational book to the, to the rest of Scripture. And so before I, I get into my topic for, the not, for tonight that I've been assigned, which is Exodus 32, a passage that if you've ever read through the Bible, you obviously sticks out in your mind. This is a passage about the golden calf. So let me just very briefly, I'm not going to start way back in Exodus 1, but let's just kind of revisit how we got recently from where we were to where we are right now in the golden calf episode. So the last time I was up here, about a month ago, I preached in Exodus um, around the focus about the giving of the Mosaic Covenant. So we kind of laid out covenants and how they're all throughout the Bible and how they're woven throughout Scripture and how we ascribe to covenant theology here. And we talked specifically about the Mosaic Covenant and the giving of that. And just to briefly to recount how that unfolded, we had, first of all, we had the people coming to the base of Mount Sinai and then God's voice thundering the Ten Commandments directly to them. So we have that. Then after that, so that's chapters 19 through 20 of Exodus. Then after that, Moses comes, he draws near to God, but then he only, not, he's, God's not thundering directly to the people anymore. Moses only is receiving some various other laws that he then is to relay back to the people. And that happens in chapters 20 through 23. Then Moses comes back into the presence of the people in chapter 24. And then when this happens, he and the people confirm the covenant together. They confirm it. There's a lot of blood. We talked about the significance of blood a couple of times now. There's a lot of blood going on. And they have this very bold declaration that they say. They say this multiple times. They say it in chapter 19 multiple times. They say it in 24 again. And the phrase that I kind of drew out last time, something that you might remember from my last sermons, the people, whenever Moses presents these laws to them, especially the Ten Commandments, and the people respond, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That is their refrain. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then after this, we have a meal, a meal that is hosted by God. Moses gets to come into God's special presence and he's, this time he's able to bring 73 other people, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, his sons, and then 70 elders of the people. So 
After the people affirm the covenant, Moses, Aaron, Moses and the 73 others go to enjoy a meal prepared by God where, they given his, where they have given him special, God has given them special presents. And then chapter 4 ends like this. I want to read it again just to kind of, it sets up Exodus 32 very well. So the end of chapter 24, starting in verse 12, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait, wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. It's going to be important. Aaron, let him go, let you go to them if you have a dispute. Then Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so that's where we're set up here. Now, that's where I ended off last time. Since then, we've had, and if you read chapters 25 through, thir- up, up into 32, this is what Hal spent time on, this is what Dirk spent time on, this is what Prashant was supposed to spend time on last week before his providential toothache, um, what he will pick up back next week, so we're a bit a- anachronistic here, but it's okay, it's going to work out just fine. And so during these 40 days and 40 nights, God gives Moses instructions for the tabernacle and the temple, Dirk gave a great, great sermon on that. God gives Moses instructions for the priest's garments. Hal gave a great sermon on that. God gives instructions about observances of the Sabbath. Prashant, I'm sure, will give a great sermon on that next week, so come back. Um, all of these are wonderful. These are beautiful things that are happening that while Moses is there for those 40 days and 40 nights. That's what's happening in God's presence, special presence up there. Well, down at the base of the mountain, something else is happening, something sinister something that is incredibly evil. And that's where we arrive at Exodus 32. So let's read that. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and a sacrifice to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on, by both, si- written on both sides, in the front and the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, 
It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came up near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they, that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And they took it and they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you from on this day. And the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because of the calf they made, the one that Aaron made. Well, that did not take long, right? Remember the rally cry from confirming the covenant, all that the Lord has said we will do? Well, it's been less than a month and a half, and the covenant has already been broken. Remember two of my sermons ago when we looked at Massa and Meribah. I introduced that sermon by describing Israel's name and what it means. It means wrestles with God or strives with God. And introduced the idea of how that's going to play out through the rest of Israel's history as a nation. They're going to constantly be wrestling with God. And here, the wrestling is egregious, violent even. So what in the world has happened? The covenant has already been broken. Less than 40 days. Verse the people, they become restless, they become impatient, they become untrusting, untrust, untrusting of Moses, they don't know what happened to him, and implicitly untrusting of God, because Moses is God's messenger, so they don't know what's going on. But remember, they've already observed many awe-inducing miracles, but for some reason, they can't conceive of a reason why their leader, Moses, has been gone for 40 days. Maybe they thought he'd starved to death, maybe they thought he'd been killed, maybe they thought he had been frozen or consumed by the fire, but they've seen all of these miracles, most of which Moses himself had performed, had been performed through Moses, but they can't conceive of why he is gone for 40 days. Something must have happened to him. So the stage, the exit from Egypt has concluded, but we need someone else to go before us now. Our leader is gone, so we need someone else. Obviously, Yahweh and Moses have disappeared. So they go to Aaron. And this is Aaron, right? Aaron is the one who has spoken the very words given by God to Pharaoh. Because remember, Moses can't talk well, can't talk good. So he's spoken through Aaron. Aaron has been speaking the words of God to them. But now, he goes and makes a golden calf. So just as a side note... This highlights the importance of having church leaders whose moral character surpasses their ability to speak well. Because what happens in churches most of the time, churches want good speakers. They want good preachers, and they overlook the moral character. But when you look at the vast majority of the qualifications for a church leader in the New Testament, almost all of them are centered around character qualities. 
they're not centered around the ability to give a dynamic sermon. The ability to teach is definitely in there. But that's not the primary thing. It's mostly character qualities. And so that's highlighted here in the case of Aaron. Aaron was obviously a good speaker, but his moral character is put into question by this episode, right? So back from that side note, the people then under Aaron's instructions take off their jewelry. And this is egregious too, because remember how they got this jewelry. Remember how they got all the gold that they have. They were poor when they were slaves, but they have all this gold now. Remember where it came from. The gold was given to them by the Egyptians as they were leaving in a hurry, right? This was a great mercy shown to them by God because God had moved the hearts of the Egyptians to give them the gold. And now they're using it for an atrocious purpose. And so Aaron fashions this gold into a calf. And so let me take another note here. Have you ever wondered why it's a calf? Okay. You ever wondered that? Why, why a calf? And so this is, we're not explicit here, but this is the reason why I think it is. Okay, so remember earlier in the book how the people longed to return to Egypt back in the earlier the book, book of Exodus. They wanted to go back to Egypt many times, actually a couple times already. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They had water, they had meat, they had vegetables. They didn't, weren't wandering around in the desert. They forgot that they were slaves and were working, you know, making bricks out of really nothing. They'd forgotten all of that, but they wanted to return to Egypt. And the calf is part of that. Now it's coming again. They're wanting to return to Egypt again because the Egyptians had a god named Apis. Okay? And Apis in the Egyptian mythology is represented by a bull. Okay? And even more egregious than that, Apis has a special function in Egypt. Apis was a mediator. He was a mediator between humans and the more powerful deities such as Ta and Osiris. Okay? So we talked about the importance of a mediator last time the ascent and descent of Moses. Moses is the mediator. So they know, the people know that they can't come into God's presence. They see his fire. They see that he's an all-consuming God. They're fearful at the thunder. And so they know they can't come into his presence. And they suppose that their mediator, Moses, is dead. And so they've got to go back to the other mediator that they knew, Apis. So they only say, give us Apis as our leader. Our other mediator's dead. So then Aaron declares this to be a god, and he goes even further and makes an altar to this god. And then in a moment of syncretism, he declares the next day is going to be a feast to Yahweh. So here we have Apis, but the next day is going to be a feast to Yahweh, this blending of where we come from and who we know to be the true god. You see this sometimes in religions today. You try to have some sort of syncretism here. It doesn't work. It never works. You fall into idolatry that way. So remember that the people have just heard the Ten Commandments spoken by Yahweh himself directly, and Aaron has just enjoyed a special presence of Yahweh, the Ten Commandments 40-ish days ago, and Aaron 40-ish days ago. Aaron even saw his feet standing upon a sapphire sky, and now you have the people and Aaron go and immediately break the first, the second, the third, and possibly the seventh depending on how you interpret that phrase, rose up to play in verse 6. So they've definitely broken three commandments immediately and possibly four, probably four. The covenant that they so emphatically affirmed, declaring all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do just a short time ago, it's gone, it's broken. The covenant's gone now. So while this is happening, after this is happening, God lets Moses in on the secret because Moses is not aware. Remember, Moses is not omnipresent. He doesn't know these things. God does. So God tells him. And as soon as God tells him this, God starts to disown the people. So now they've broken the covenant, right? The covenant, no, God no longer has any sort of covenant obligation because remember we talked about this last time, the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. God's presence and God's blessing depended upon their obedience to it and now they've disobe disobeyed so God is no longer demanded to uphold his portion either. He is completely just to remove himself from this covenant and no more. The covenant's gone. They've broken. Because it's conditional on their obedience. And so speaking to Moses, you'll notice that God doesn't call them my people anymore. God says, your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. Not my people who I brought up. Your people who you brought up. 
And so he makes Moses an offer. And this is, this is a tempting offer, right? He says, let my wrath consume them, and we're going to start over, Moses. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. This is tempting. This is really tempting, right? But you see, and later on, we're going to be told in the, in the Torah that Moses was the, the most meek or the most humble of all the people. And you see this right here. A great display of meekness and humility on Moses' part here because Moses declines the offer. Great nation's going to be made out of him. God has told him this. He declines. But Moses prays back to God is what he does. And it's a great model on how to approach God in prayer. Because if you notice something, Moses doesn't defend the people. He does not make excuses for them. He actually does not even ask God to forget, forgive them yet. He does later on. But in this first prayer, Moses does not even ask God to forgive them. What he does, he makes a, an appeal to God's character. He makes an appeal to God's nature. He says, remember the promises that you have made to Abraham, to Isaac, and, and Jacob. You've made promises, God, and you cannot lie. We know this. We know that you cannot lie. And in those promises, you even swore by your own name. And so you can't break your third commandment. That would be taking your own name in vain. God, we know that you cannot do that. So notice the prayer there. He's appealing to God's character and God's nature. He's also concerned about God's name and his glory. He makes the case that if God destroys the people, the Egyptians are then going to scoff. And then this is going to bring dishonor on God's name. And it's a great model for us to follow because the primary focus of our prayer should always be God and not us. Requests are, can come, obviously. God tells us this. But prayers should always begin like Moses prays here, and they should always begin like Jesus prays, hallowed be thy name. That's the model of the prayer. That's how it opens up. And you see this. God is very pleased with this prayer. And he's pleased by showing that he averts his wrath from the disaster. And so later on after this, Moses displays some righteous anger and observes the events that God warns him about. So maybe, maybe Moses didn't, under, didn't understand the extent of the party or something, but upon actually seeing how evil, how evil the people were being, he breaks the tablets of the law on the ground, burns the golden calf, grinds it into powder, and then makes the people drink it. This incredibly bitter, metallic-tasting drink would then remind the people of the bitterness of their sins. And so just to hearken this back to a previous episode in Exodus that we didn't cover in the series, but it's there. In Exodus chapter 15, the people are needing water. This is before the Masa and Meribah event. This is at Mara, different M. Ah. And the people are needing water. And Moses, they're at Mara, and the water's bitter. And Moses finds a log, and he throws it in the water. And you remember how the water's described here. It goes from bitter to sweet. Okay? Bitter to sweet. The reverse is happening in Exodus 32. The water is sweet and it's turned bitter. Back in Exodus 15 in chapter 26, it says in that Mara, the bitter, the bitter to sweet water, it says, The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. So the bitter to sweet water is supposed to be a reminder to the people that God is their healer if they obey the commandments. But now they've broken the covenant. The commandments are no longer obeyed, and so the water then is made bitter, and it's made sickening. God is no longer their healer. God is bringing bitterness upon them. And so this is to be a reminder, even the ones that survived that had to drink the bitter, can you imagine drinking water that tastes like gold? It's got to be nasty, like right? Probably made them sick, some sort of heavy metal poisoning too, at least, right? But it's to remind them that this water is nasty. When you disobey God, curses come, nastiness comes. It's no longer sweet, bitter. Blessings come through obedience and curses come through disobedience. That's what it reminded them of now. That's why Moses grinds this to a powder and makes them drink it. 
And then after Moses does this, Moses has this interrogation of Aaron. He asks, why Aaron? What did these people do to you to make you commit such a vile sin as this? Remember, Moses has been the subject of attack too. The people have come and grumbled against him. They've attacked him before. He knows how the people are. But he responds righteously. He says, Aaron, what did they do to make you do this? And then Aaron's response, I have to admit, every time I read this, it makes me laugh. It made me laugh when I was preparing this, just, just due to the absolute, how absolutely pathetic the response is, right, of Aaron's excuse. I don't know, they gave me the goal, I threw it in, a calf came out, I don't want to do anything. It's just absolutely pathetic. He, he, he takes no, he owns nothing. Um, and it should remind us how pathetic we sound when we try to make excuses for our sin or shift the blame to others, right? He makes an excuse. I, I didn't do this. I don't know. It just came out. Whenever we're told that he fashioned it himself, it didn't just come out of the fire. He said, well, the people, they, the people made me do it. You know? And so just like Adam shifted the blame to Eve, Aaron shifts the blame to the people. Just like Adam implicitly blames God for the miracle of giving him the woman, Aaron implicitly blames God because the calf has miraculously sprung into existence, right? If there's a miracle happening, God's involved. And Aaron says, well, it's a miracle because the calf just came out like that. So he's implicitly blaming God for this too, just like Adam does. And so don't, I mean, you can't, can't argue with me. This is, this is pathetic. So Aaron, he should have just confessed his sins and asked for forgiveness, like David or like Job. They do. They're confronted with their sins immediately, brokenhearted, ask for forgiveness. And the Lord is just and righteous to forgive those who do those things. And on top of this, Aaron has completely lost control of the people. So God previously had threatened to consume them in his wrath, but they almost didn't even have to worry about this because they are so, they're not going to have to worry about God destroying them because they were about to destroy themselves. That's what the context is here. That's what you're getting here. They had broken loose. They had gotten so out of control that they had threatened the very livelihood of the nation because their enemies are looking. They can see them. They can see how crazy everyone is and how chaotic everything is. And so the enemies are now starting to plan an attack. And the attack is going to be successful if the chaos is not reined in. So Moses must quell the chaos if the nation is to continue. Okay, so in a a passage that might make us uncomfortable to our modern ears. Moses recruits Levites with this battle cry. He says, who is on the Lord's side? If you believe the nation must prosper, prosper, if you believe that the Lord's name shall not be taken in vain, if you want to settle the chaos, grab your sword and come. We've got to quell the chaos. And so in a great but very necessary tragedy, 3,000 men are killed by the swords of the Levites. But the consequence of this is that redemptive history is allowed to continue. If the nation of Israel doesn't survive, redemptive history doesn't continue. The Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, doesn't come. The nation has to continue here, which is why the chaos has to be quelled, which is why the Levites have to take up their swords, because the enemies are going to come. You know, the Moabites or the Ammonites or any of the Canaanites. Anybody that's wandering around in the wilderness here with them are going to come and they're going to destroy them because they're so chaotic. So we have to squash this now. So Israel survives. Then after this, Moses comes up to God again. And in a few weeks, we have a, a, a sermon about Moses as the intercessor. So I'm not going to steal Dirk's thunder here. I'm going to leave, leave this as a bit of a, a teaser for that sermon. But I've got I've to mention it because you see it playing out right here in this passage. Moses has a willingness to intercede for the people. He says, God, I know these people have sinned, but forgive them. If you need to punish someone, punish me. That's what Moses tells God. This obviously points us to Jesus. You'd be blind not to see that. But just as Moses' willingness to be a sacrifice, God's response is also very telling here. And it points us to Jesus in a different way. Okay? Because God rejects Moses' offer, actually. Moses comes in and he's offering to be him to be a sacrifice, but God said God rejects this. He says, "No, I'm going to visit the sins on those who have committed the sins." So why? Why is this? Why does God reject Moses's offer? Well, the fact is simple because Moses is not an adequate substitute. 
right? Moses is not good enough. Moses was a great man. Moses was a mediator. But Moses is still a sinful man. Moses is set apart for a certain task, but he's still sinful. So the plague sent at the end of the chapter is meant to be the penalty for this sin of this whole sordid episode. So, that's the passage broken down. So what can we learn here? We can learn quite a few things. So first, while I'm, while I'm right here in the passage, I just I want to make it clear again, because I said it last time about the covenants, that God's standards have not changed, right? The covenant of grace was always plan A. It wasn't plan B. And also, God's standards have not changed. God will still blot out those who have sinned against him. And that is why the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is such an important doctrine. I had no clue that Pastor Thomas was going there this sermon, this morning in his sermon. You know, the imputed righteousness of Jesus is so important. God demands perfection. The Israelites can't achieve it here. Moses can't achieve it. We cannot achieve it. But there is one who has not sinned against God, and just like the hymn writer says, we get to enjoy the benefit. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Right? That's a, that is a line about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful. We get to stand faultless before the throne because we are dressed in his righteousness alone. So Jesus like Moses, comes before the Father and says, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? I have bound these to me. You are bound to me, and I am bound to them. Remember the covenant that we have made as members of the Trinity. Remember that I bear your name, and they bear my name. So, Father, relent from any disaster. And Jesus is perfect. Jesus' righteousness is given to us, and so the wrath of God is averted then. We don't get our sins visited to us because they were visited on Jesus. And so, that's all I'll say about intercession because I don't want to take Dirk's whole sermon. But I had to touch on it here because it's such an important thing, the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And so then, what else can we learn from the passage? So we learn that this covenant cannot work. Learn that here. It could not work. It could never work. So what do I, what do I, first of all, what do I mean by the word work here? What do I mean by work? So if you recall, the whole point of this, and indeed the whole point of redemptive history and redemptive revelation is to get back into the state of Eden. This even came up with the tabernacle. It comes up with the priestly garments. It comes up with the Sabbath. All these things that, Mo, that God's telling Moses while he's there on the 40 days and the 40 nights, this is to describe how Eden was and how we can have Eden back and how heaven's going to be. And that's the whole point, to get back to Eden, to get back into God's full presence where man really is truly alive. And this is pointed to by the standards that God sets in the Ten Commandments. Like I said, it's pointed to in the vivid description and the significance of the tabernacle. It's pointed to by the priestly garments. It's pointed to by resting on God's Sabbaths. And all of these little minute details that God has just described to Moses during those 40 days and 40 nights were meant to point the people back to Eden and the bliss of that garden where God's presence is fully enjoyed. That's what everything is is working towards here. But instead of going back to Eden, they want to go back to Egypt. God told them never to return to Egypt. And almost immediately, their hearts long to return to their slavery. So Stephen, in his great sermon, right before he is stoned in Acts, He's detailing Israel's history. If you remember that in Acts chapter seven, this is what he says in this in the portion of his sermon where he talks about the episode here with the golden calf. Starting at verse thirty-nine and going through forty-three, he says this: Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, "Make for us gods who will go before us." As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. 
Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the god Rephan and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So they wanted Egypt over Eden. That's what, you know, Stephen gives us a bit of an insight here that we weren't getting back in Exodus 32. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. That's what this whole episode is about. They want Egypt over Eden. Stephen says that. And then Stephen goes on to say that this is the, whole, this is the seed of idolatry. This is the seed that sprouts all of the idolatry later on. Later on, after the split of the kingdom, God is constantly warning Israel and Judah to turn from their idolatry. Turn. Whether it's the golden calf that Jeroboam makes. Jeroboam's going to come. He's going to make a golden calf very similar to this one. Whether it's that, whether it's worshiping Moloch, whether it's worshiping Chemosh or Baal or Ishtar or the sun or the stars or whatever false gods their heart are set upon. Stephen says that God gave them over to worship these things and it all started with this golden calf at Sinai. So you see how one little bit of idolatry can sprout into a lot of idolatry. And so this desire to turn back to Egypt is going to rear its head so many times. Once again, God warns them to never return to Egypt. He tells them later on in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, especially for military strength, don't go there then. Solomon, the first thing that he does when he becomes king, he goes to Egypt for military strength. And the nation holds on to this up until the very end. At the end of the book of Jeremiah, God warns those who remain in Judah. Babylon has come in, they've taken everything, they've destroyed all the things, and there's still a few Judeans left alive in Judah. And God tells them through Jeremiah, do not go to Egypt. That's the only command he gives them. He said, stay here, do not go to Egypt, stay in Judah. What do you think they did? Jeremiah 43, 7, and they came into the land of Egypt. For they did not obey the voice of the Lord. They keep trying to go back to Egypt. Why? Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. But, but this all comes full circle. It all comes full circle in a miraculous way, actually. It put, comes full circle whenever you start reading the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, when it's describing Jesus' birth episode in chapter 2, this is what it says, if I can get there. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, says this. Now when they had departed, remember this is Jesus and his family, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Curious. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to, reach, about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so now you see where the connection is. Now it all comes full circle. Now you see why all this is necessary because it's building up to Jesus. It's all about the new covenant. Jesus, who was made sin for us, had to come out of the place that was the geographical manifestation of sin. Right? Egypt is the geographical manifestation of sin. Everything it represents was sin throughout Israel's history. But this is where the Savior comes from physically because he's made sin for us. He grasped the promises that Israel could not grasp. He brings a better covenant. And so you see right from the outset that the Mosaic covenant would not work. It could not work. We needed one that is all of grace because our works cannot get us into God's presence. Only Jesus's. But at the same time, the law is not useless. Don't misunderstand me. We should not cast it aside. So I'm going to remind you quickly what we reform folks like to call the threefold use of the law. First of all, the law tells us who God is and how righteous he is. I'm not going to develop these. I'm just going to state them very briefly. The law tells us who God is and how righteous he is. It's here that we feel the weight of our weakness and how much we depend upon Jesus and the strength that is found in him. Two, the law restrains evil. 
It cannot change hearts, but it does provide a measure of justice on the earth. And then three, the law reveals what is pleasing to God. And what is pleasing to God should be our delight as those who seek to worship and glorify God. So we learn that the law is useful, but it couldn't save. And from the very beginning, it could never save. Only Jesus can save. So another thing we're going to notice here from the passage that we can learn. Notice the zeal of the Levites. They were not satisfied to sit idly by and see the name of the Lord profaned in any sort of way. Phineas later on is going to act the same way. Elijah also slaughters the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. There's other instances of people fulfilling the will of the Lord by purging idolatry with the sword. It goes on quite a bit in the Old Testament especially. So I'm not suggesting here that we go around killing everyone who does not conform to the word of God. No means. Absolutely not. Because the New Testament makes clear that we uphold the honor of the Lord with our words and not swords. With hearts and not physical strength. Very clear. But the question that Moses asks here is still relevant to the church today. Who is on the Lord's side? So this rallying cry here, it serves a very specific purpose for Moses because it's a call to arms, a literal call to arms here. To avert the Lord's wrath, something must be done about all this gross idolatry that's going on in the camp. And so there, there are some parallels to this, this idea in the New Testament. Paul commands us to not even eat with someone who falsely proclaims to be a Christian. Paul has similar commands geared towards the purity of the local church. And even actually the idea of church discipline has some similarities here in that the offending party or parties must be cut off from the body. Okay? So you see some parallels there in the New Testament. Jesus, is all, Jesus also cleanses the temple of those who would make his father's house a den of robbers. And then obviously at the very end, the second coming of our Lord will be full of just judgment and God's holy wrath, some physical there. So we see this idea transferring over to the New Testament in a lot of different ways. But mostly in the New Testament, instead of looking at those outside of God's elect, you look how the concept of a purging here is applied to believers most of all. Jesus, when calling forth his disciples, tells them to leave everything behind, including their families in some cases. So then, who is on the Lord's side? Those who are willing to give up anything and everything for the sake of Christ. So that is the primary focus of this purging for the New Testament community. The purging must come from within the members. Because we want to purge of the sin. And you'll notice that one of Jesus' only physical call to arms, although it's metaphorical, obviously metaphorical, But the physicalness, one of the most violent things that Jesus says, although it's metaphorical, involves looking inward. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members, that your whole body be thrown into hell, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It's a very violent statement, metaphorical. But violent. It's one of the most violent things Jesus ever said. So then, who is on the Lord's side? Those who are willing to go to war with their own sinfulness. Those people who give up their idols. Your eyeball or your hand becomes an idol. Plug it out. Throw it off. Cut it off. And so then that brings us to the last application of the passage. The warning against idolatry. Like I said, idolatry goes on to plague Israel from here on out. It is a sin that God absolutely detested. It's one that we downplay today. You can think of the most egregious sin in your mind, murder, maybe. Well, the first commandment is the first commandment for a reason, because God hates idolatry. No God shall come before him. He and only he shall be worshipped. Israel and Judah are going to be purged from the promised land primarily because of idolatry. It's a heinous sin because it attempts to exchange the glory of God for something else, anything else. God is very, very jealous for his glory. He does not tolerate idolatry. And so this episode of the golden calf is so illustrative and so memorable that the metaphor of the golden calf has even retained usage in common language in our own day. So-and-so has become a golden calf. You know, you hear that, even from unbelievers. 
And this is for good reason, because we are sinful humans, and we are just as prone to idolatry as every other human that has come before us. We tend to scoff at the idolatry that happens in the Old Testament. They're worshiping wooden things. They're worshiping things made of gold. But it's part of the New Testament believers, too. In many instances in Paul's letters where he makes these lists of sins, John even mentioned this in Sunday school today, he makes these lists of sins of those who, pract- those who practice these things are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Idolatry is almost always included in those things. There's other ones that are almost always included too, but idolatry is almost always included. And in a, a passage that directly links to the golden calf episode, Paul says this to the Corinthians at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verses 1 through 7, and then skipping down to verse 14, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. They'd seen all these miracles. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, here's the direct quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then skip down to verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is written to a church, remember. Idolatry is a pervasive sin, even for the Christian. Like John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. So in our day, though, idols do not typically come fashioned of wood. They aren't typically overlaid with gold. Anything at all can, that is an object of your worship is an idol. It can be money. It can be lust. It can be your job. It can be leisure. It can be your favorite sports team. It can be some celebrity. It can be some goal that you're working towards. It can literally be anything in the world. It can even be good things that God has given us. Because you remember, the goal that the Israelites made the calf out of was a gift from God. They had been given this gold because God moved the Egyptians' heart to give it to them. So be warned. You can take gifts from God and turn them into idols. Because we are fallen creatures and our hearts tend towards sin, we can. We can turn anything into an idol. And like Stephen showed us, just a little idolatry turns into more idolatry and more idolatry. So consider, think about tonight. What could be a golden calf in your own life? I had to consider these when I was writing my own sermon. Scary, huh? Yeah. Because you see, we're no better than the Israelites. We want to go back into the slavery of our sins. We want to return to Egypt. So then the solution is to guard your heart from idolatry because it can be overcome because in those lists, Paul says, and such were some of you. You were idolaters. You're not anymore. You were, not are. Your affections for your idols must be expelled and replaced by something that is more beautiful something that is more satisfying and something that provides more benefits than the idol that you're worshiping. So this is Jesus. This is obviously Jesus, the one that came out of Egypt. That's the cure for idolatry. He's the one that is most desired. He's the one that is above all. So who is on the Lord's side? Those that love Jesus above all else. And to close, 1 John has what I have always thought to be a very peculiar ending. Because if you read most epistles, they end in some sort of benediction. They end in some sort of final greetings. Even John's other epistles, Second John and Third John, they end in this way. They end with the final greeting. But First John does not do that. First John has no benediction. It has no final greetings. It's a letter that details how to walk in the light of Christ's righteousness. It gives Christians great assurance of their salvation. It has great exposition of applications of love for the Christian life. And then it ends with instructions on how to overcome the world. And if you notice, it ends quite abruptly, actually. 
actually, other than Jonah, I can't really think of a book of the Bible that ends more abruptly. Because John here, John doesn't want the readers of this letter to be pondering any sort of pleasantries, a final greetings or anything like that. He wants to end with a punch on this letter. He wants the readers, who are now you and I, to really remember the last words of the letter. I can honestly say, I rem- this is the epistle that I remember the end of more than anything else because it's so unique. There's no benediction, there's no final greetings. It's a punch at the end of it. So the last two verses of 1 John say this in 5, 20 and 21. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Here's the punch. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The brothers and sisters, the Son of God has come, like John says. We know him. We know that he is true. We know that he is the true God, not an idol. We know that he is the eternal life. And how do we know that we are in him by keeping ourselves from idols? So I ask you one last time, who is on the Lord's side? He who keeps himself from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Pray. Dear God, we recognize that you are high above all that you are so much greater than we can imagine. That we are sinful human beings that have hearts that tend towards idolatry. Because that is our nature. But your nature is not that. You are holy. And the nature of your son is not that. He is righteous. And our nature that you see is righteous because of him. What a glorious truth, Lord. Lay that upon our hearts. Let us kill the idols that we have. To those of us who are still making idols here, purge them of this, Lord. Show them the righteousness of Jesus and his benefits. Help them, Lord. Bring them to your side. In Christ's name we pray.